0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content.
1: To the Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different, a discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast.
0: Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Today, we want to look at three topics. One is a survey of business confidence from the Irish Small and Medium Enterprise Organization yesterday, that's ISME. Uh, secondly, we want to discuss briefly the inflation numbers out of the United States yesterday, because obviously there's been a lot of talk and a lot of fear in markets about incipient inflation over the last um, number of months. And as a consequence of that, there was a lot of attention being paid to yesterday's US inflation number. So we just take you through that and finally, we want to talk about taxation, and in the context of suggestions that have been made by the International Monetary Fund, by the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, and by a Green Party TD, that we should introduce a solidarity tax on those who did well during COVID to help alleviate the inequality that has obviously arisen from the events of the last 12 months And in that context, we also want to talk a little bit about the Irish income tax system in general. I'd like to start off with the ISME survey yesterday. Um, The small business sector is an incredibly important part of the Irish economy. 99.8% of companies registered in Ireland are categorized as SME. That is employing less than 250 people. And um they account for around sixty seven and a half percent of total employment in the economy, so they are really the lifeblood of the economy and their particular lifeblood of the rural economy, where small businesses tend to dominate the business landscape um It's obviously been a difficult twelve month period for the small business sector because many of those businesses are involved in sectors that have been subject to very significant restrictions over the last 12 months. So it's, it's been a very, very challenging environment. Um, we Yesterday, Ismay released the business survey of its members for the first quarter of the year. It was taken in early March and it showed a pretty dramatic rebound in business confidence, um, an increase of 39%. Um, and that compares to a decline of 33% in the final quarter of last year. And within that, Profitability expectations up 15%, which is very reassuring. And there's a, for future sales in the coming year, um, an increase of 28% in confidence there. So all in all, it's a very upbeat assessment of how the SME sector sees itself at the moment. Perhaps a little bit surprising, given that the sector, at least large parts of the sector, are stuck in significant lockdown and subject to significant restrictions at the moment. But nevertheless, just like equity markets, I think SME business owners are looking forward. They believe that a number of factors will give rise to a significant rebound in the economy over the next 12 to 18 months, uh, the rollout of vaccine, um, the the built-up, pent-up demand that definitely exists in the economy at the moment, and also the fact that policymakers globally and domestically continue to provide a lot of support. So those factors have certainly combined to instill quite a strong level of confidence amongst the very important small business sector. Um, I, I One of the fears I suppose I would have is that um, there is certainly potential for disappointment on the vaccine front. And we've seen um, over the last 48 hours, um, a couple of Disturbing announcements about the J&J vaccine, about AstraZeneca, um, which are clearly going to damage the rollout of the vaccine program here. So there's a little bit of me that is fearful that the SME sector is being a little bit premature in its conference. I hope not, um, but I think um, it, it'll be interesting to watch those challenges for the sector as they unfold over the coming months. Chris, do you actually believe this sort of confidence, do you think it's justified in the current environment? As
1: you say Jim it's well placed provided that we can continue to unlock our economies as we've started in the UK and hopefully you'll be doing so very soon in Ireland. The setbacks on the vaccine are disappointing and a reminder that um, just as the UK is coming out of lockdown for the third time at the moment it is the third time so therefore you know we've come out of lockdown before and then a relatively short period afterwards, gone back into it, this can be um, a two-steps-forward, one-or-two-steps-backward process. But when we do eventually, finally come out of this, the amount of cash that is sitting um, in personal consumer bank accounts and also on corporate sector balance sheets, both many companies, not all, of course, and many individuals um, have built up an awful lot of savings. So the ability to spend is there. And from what I've seen in the UK over the last few days, the willingness to spend it is also there. Uh, you've only got to walk down a high street and see how many people are sitting outside in the cold in restaurants and pubs, look inside shops that are now open, etc. All of the surveys suggest that there's a lot of money out there and a lot of it is waiting to be spent. And the actual evidence from the US economy, which rightly or wrongly has never really been that locked down to begin with and certainly is is quite open at the moment it it is growing very very strongly thanks in no small part to the stimulus that has been given by joe biden the vaccine thing is of course worrying uh the variant thing is worrying uh i'm a little bit puzzled by the attitude of some authorities towards giving the vaccine in the wake of these blood clot risks um a professor at University College London is one of many that I've seen write about this. Tim Spector has pointed out that the risks of a blood clot from the AstraZeneca vaccine are actually lower than a woman faces when she takes the oral contraceptive pill. Um, the risks from the AstraZ- risk of blood clots from AstraZeneca are lower than the risk of blood clots from smoking. And perhaps most importantly of all, the risks of a blood clot From taking the astrazeneca vaccine are lower than if you get actually get COVID. So I'm not sure that uh, our approach to risk um, makes an awful lot of sense here. Um, But that's that's an aside. Um, It it, it is what it is. So I'm quite confident that once we're out of this, um, there is going to be the V-shaped recovery for uh, all economies. Actually, Um, the only question is the timing of this. I think this is something that is going to happen. We're, We're not just sure when.
0: Yeah, interesting. I I hope you're right, Chris. Um, I I have been a little bit astounded over the last couple of days about the attitude of health authorities to the risk reward trade-off. And um, I hope sanity will prevail. And I hope the vaccine program gets rolled out as quickly as possible. Because as the IMF said last week, um, it's a story of the jobs will come from the jabs over the coming months. So it's really, really important. Um, I mentioned in my introduction that the markets have certainly been focused over the last few months on uh, the potential for inflation, particularly in the US economy, uh, because we've seen the latest 1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus package from Biden. Um, We see plans for a massive infrastructure investment package over the coming months, topping $2 trillion. So there is concern in markets that this will feed inflation in the US economy. Um, And indeed, bond yields have started to creep up a little bit since the beginning of the year, albeit from historically low levels. But they have shown a little bit of nervousness. but uh, And that's based on fears about inflation and how the authorities might react to that. Uh, Equity markets, okay, they've had a few days and weeks of a little bit of nervousness, volatility, uh, but they are certainly in a pretty good place at the moment as we move into the second quarter of the year. So, equity markets, not terribly concerned at the minute, but bond markets, which are really, really important, as you have explained. in so many different ways in recent podcasts, Chris. Yesterday, though, we got the latest um, inflation number for the United States for March, and that was a number that was being looked at very, very closely by the markets. In the event, there was an increase of 0.6% in the month, which was a significant increase. Um, Some of that was due to sort of base effects, um, gasoline prices up by 9.1%, reflecting the rebound in... Um, oil prices. Um, And if you exclude that volatile food and energy component, core inflation was up by 0.3%. There's a couple of interesting points to note. One is that where the inflation actually occurred was in areas of the services sector that were reopening. So for example, hotel prices have increased by 4.4%. Auto insurance, as people get back on the road again, up by 3.3% and recreational services up by 0.8%. So there's a sense here that after 12 months of abeyance, that service sector providers are now starting to play a little bit of catch up. The other interesting point is that goods inflation, you know, physical stuff up by just 0.1%. So there's still no indication of um, demand driving goods price inflation in an upper direction. I know it is still early days, uh, but I would take a certain element of calm and relaxation from yesterday's numbers. It's not suggesting to me that we are about to get a significant upsurge in inflation. We will get some increase in the next 12 months. There's no doubt about that for base effects, if nothing else. Uh, but I'm not terribly concerned that we're going to see an absolute resurgence. What do you think, Chris?
1: Yeah, I tend to agree, Jim, as, as we've said before, that yes, we're going to get some more inflation this year, but no, it's not going to be sustained in, in any material way, and we're not going back to the 1970s. That said, the numbers yesterday that you quote did come in stronger than expected. And I think if you've got a run of that, if you've got two or three more months of that, of the numbers coming in higher than we think, and we already think the numbers are going to be quite high relative to the very low inflation numbers of the past, If there are more surprises like yesterday, then I think our sanguine stance will have to be revisited, albeit temporarily. More importantly, I think the markets won't react in the sanguine way that they reacted yesterday. Because although the numbers did come in stronger than expected, if you'd been able to forecast that, if you'd been able to tell either of us, both of us, that the numbers were going to surprise on the upside, I think we'd have both forecast a bad day in the markets. The bond yields would have gone up and the equities would have gone down because of these inflation fears, because the economic threat, we've talked about the vaccine and virus threat to the V-shaped recovery. The economic threat to that V-shaped recovery is a resurgence of inflation. So when numbers surprise on the upside, you'd expect trouble. And we didn't get any yesterday. In fact, bond yields actually fell And the equity market held steady. In fact, I think the US equity market eked out a a very small gain. So that was a a surprise, as markets always seem to manage to do. Um, So that suggests that the markets are with us in our view that inflation isn't going to be a problem going forward. Um, But I do think this is something we're going to have to watch very, very closely. Um, Be prepared to change our minds. We're going to have to be guided by the data, by what is actually happening, because in the United States, that's where, if there's going to be a problem, is where it's going to occur. I don't think we're going to get an inflation problem in any sustained way in Europe. That There, my concerns are, are, are very small indeed. Where I am a bit twitchy is, is the US. That's because the US economy is absolutely flying and... Um, All of this stimulus that is still in the pipeline from Joe Biden, the stuff he's already done, um, the effects of which we haven't really seen yet, and all the stuff that he's planning to do is really pouring fuel on an economy that that is on fire. So certainly the ingredients for an inflation problem are there. You can do the work as we do to point out that there are reasons why this won't lead to a big problem. But there is definitely the potential for for a problem and perhaps even a problem that itself that is short lived and as I say the thing that I'm worried about now is that uh, the surprise that we saw yesterday that the markets really took on the chin very very well if it's repeated once or twice more then I think that we are in for a little bit of volatility in markets
0: of course the big challenge is for policymakers if we do get um, an up an upside surprise on the inflation front. How will policymakers respond to that? Because it is very hard to see how they would start to increase official interest rates anytime soon on either side of the Atlantic, because a key part of monetary policy, as I see it over the last 12 months, has been to ensure that bond yields and official interest rates are kept as low as possible to facilitate the fiscal expansion that's happening all over the world. So policymakers are definitely in a bit of a bind in the sense of being able to respond to any inflationary threat that might emerge. So challenging times for them. It is kind of interesting, Chris, that we're having a discussion about upside inflation at the moment, because for the last decade, um, it's been dominated by the lack of inflation or deflation, in other words, falling prices. Uh, So it's it's, it's it's good, I think, and it's reassuring from my perspective.
1: Yeah, as you say, it's a decade and longer that we've been used to the absence of inflation. And many of our younger listeners will wonder what on earth we're talking about. What is inflation? Um, and it's only old geezers like us that remember those days when we had double-digit inflation um, for many years and the problems that causes, not just for financial markets, but for economies. Because as you say, eventually, sooner or later, Central banks, policymakers respond by raising interest rates, tightening fiscal policy, and slowing the economy down. Sometimes, usually causing a recession. So this is why we're watching this, um, because it is it is the biggest threat that's out there to the economic recovery that we still hope is going to take place. Um, the, the the debate over inflation is 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 well placed. The um, thing that I think don't doesn't attract enough attention is the most extraordinary policy experiment that's being conducted in the United States. I've talked a lot about Joe Biden and his fiscal stimulus, and the way it's being facilitated. There's a triumvirate. It's like the old Roman, Empire, the original Roman Republic. There's a triumvirate running the United States at the moment. Janet Yellen, um, Joe Biden, and the Federal Reserve um, are they're all pointing in the same direction, which is pretty unusual and really unusual in the sense of how radical it is across a whole host of dimensions, none more so than in this area of inflation. Because we know the theory, which is that the Fed has changed the way it's going to do things. It's borne down on inflation in the past. Now it wants to encourage a bit, not a lot, but it wants inflation to run for a while above its target. And we know that's the theory, but I I, I wonder whether actually living through the practice will... Um, be treated with, in such a sanguine way by by markets because when inflation is above the Fed's target for a while and potentially for a good while I suspect that we will get a lot more worries a lot more concerns and indeed a lot more volatility in markets and the hope is that the experiment works but one of the things that worries us is the, the, that inflation is not something that you can easily calibrate in a finely detailed sort of way which is what the Fed clearly wants to do And uh, it is an experiment. It's a radical experiment. We all hope for the success. If it does work, it's going to be great. As you say, the little bit of inflation is actually going to be a good thing for a whole host of reasons, not least with respect to relieving the real cost of the debt. Um, But it is an experiment, the results of which we're going to live through over the next few years. And so I suspect, Jim, we're going to be coming back to this one time and time again.
0: I guess we are, Chris, and it'll be really interesting to watch how it evolves on this side of the Atlantic as well, given that Europe really has been stuck in a deflationary spiral for quite some time. at the In the podcast we did at the end of last week, Chris, um, we mentioned a solidarity tax proposal um, and I was kind of astounded from what I picked up from you on that podcast and indeed from subsequent discussions we've had on the phone that you actually think that there is some validity to this idea. I may be uh, misinterpreting you, but that's certainly how I interpret your reaction to the notion. Personally, I think it is a barmy idea. But if I could give a a little bit of context to what we're talking about, Um, last week, the International Monetary Fund was talking about the inequality that has been driven by the COVID crisis over the last 12 months, both within countries and between countries. And they were suggesting that some sort of solidarity tax should be introduced to compensate those who did less well during COVID um, and the money coming from those who did very well. So in other words, using a solidarity tax to redistribute the inequality caused by COVID-19. Then on Monday of this week, the Secretary General of the United Nations and he'll probably kill me for my pronunciation um, if he's listening to the podcast, um, Antonio Gueres. Basically, he was addressing the UN Economic and Social Forum and he called on nations to institute a wealth tax to reduce global inequality caused by the pandemic. And he cited some very interesting statistics. He said that in the last 12 months, there has been a $5 trillion surge in the wealth of the world's richest over the past year. Okay. And that those at the bottom of the pile have become increasingly vulnerable. He was calling on the creation basically of a new social contract based on solidarity, investment in education, decent jobs, green jobs, social protection, and investment in health systems. So in other words, he was calling on the the creation of this sort of wealth tax in order to create the foundation for i suppose sustainable and inclusive development um and it, it's also interesting that in the united states over the last few days we have seen a number of influential people come out in support of this notion so elizabeth warren the senator has called for a 2% tax on households in the United States and trusts that are valued between $50 million and $1 billion. Okay. So that, that was an interesting suggestion. Um, Janet, Janet, Yellen, in a different context, and we spoke about this last week, is talking about a minimum corporation tax rate, you know, the same sort of idea there about redistribution. And then I suppose, uh, less importantly, a green TD in this country, um, backed up this idea over the last couple of days. So there is a lot of influential momentum building to address the inequality that has arisen arisen from COVID. And I am not, I, I said, I think the idea of a solidarity tax in the current environment as being a bit barmy. I'm not saying that inequality hasn't increased. It has increased dramatically. And we see it within this country. We mentioned the SME sector earlier. You know, I really pity the economic and financial status of the owners of small businesses who have basically been shut down for most of the last 12 months. There has been some state compensation, but nothing like adequate to keep up their standard of living. So we are we are seeing dramatic rises in inequality within this country. And of course, between countries, it's going to become very apparent again. Um, but I, I'm just not convinced that this notion of a solidarity tax at this juncture, um, sort of punishing people who have done well over the last 12 months uh, to help people who've done less well. I think actually that's the role of government at the moment. How do you think, Chris, Heresy?
1: Well, there's a lot going on there, Jim. And, you know, it would take several podcasts to unpick the questions that you raise. First of all, the inequality thing, the inequality debate, of course, predates Covid. And people like Thomas Piketty and many other scholars in the field have been pointing out for years just how more unequal <clears throat> excuse me, some countries are becoming. And what they always do really is have the United States in their sights, and, and, and to a far lesser extent, um, other countries have inequality problems. The problem really is in the United States more than any other country, the way in which the level of inequality at the moment, and the way in which it's grown since the 1980s. That's not true, for example, in the United Kingdom. Inequality hasn't really grown that much, anywhere near the same extent as, as the United States has over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and you then start to get into the measures that you're using. Um, some measures say that the United Kingdom's economy hasn't had any inequality increase at all, for instance, and you get into that side of the debate. What I think these UN and IMF types are doing is they're not wasting a good crisis, to use that horrible cliched phrase. Um, And this is an agenda that they would have been pushing anyway, and that the consequences of the economic consequences of the pandemic for inequality have just given them another reason to push this agenda, which is very understandable because inequality has risen it's not just got economic and personal consequences, it's had political consequences. Many of us think that the rise of Donald Trump, the advent of Brexit has got an awful lot to do with that inequality and that we wouldn't have the populist politics that are plaguing the world today if it hadn't been for that rise of, of inequality. So there's a lot of stuff going, going on in the background. But it's that point about it's a US problem more than any other country. I'm not saying other countries don't have the problem. I'm talking about um, understanding where the biggest problem is. And if you're going to have this debate about inequality, I think you've got to have a debate based on the data, based on the facts, and understand those facts. And as you know, Jim, there's been a huge debate going on for years about Irish inequality and the Irish tax system, the Irish welfare system, and the role that it plays in reducing inequality. The first thing I'd say about the UN and IMF proposals is that if you have a progressive tax system, the tax system itself does a lot of that work, that extra solidarity taxes for you. Because by definition, what we mean by a progressive tax system is that as your income and wealth rise, your taxes rise. So if you have benefited in some economic financial way from Covid, you will be paying more taxes, provided your tax system is set up to allow that to happen. And nowhere in the world actually is better placed for that kind of automatic solidarity taxation than Ireland. Because on the income tax side in particular, it is probably, we think on the data, the most progressive tax income tax system in the OECD. The, 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 the club of rich countries. Um, that's because you very quickly end up paying very high rates of tax as you go up the income scale in Ireland. This is a matter of fact, it's not a matter of debate. Um, unfortunately, uh, it is a matter of debate for some people because some people do dispute that. Um, I recall um, Fintan O'Toole in the Irish Times uh, in 2015 wrote an article saying that I was dishonest. That was the word that he used for claiming that the Irish tax system is progressive and I obviously took grave exception to being called dishonest. Um, It is a matter of, uh, I don't think it's a matter of dispute and what often happens then is that people who really should know better start delving into the entrails of the numbers and point out that for example um, poor people Um, people on low incomes, they may not pay much income tax because of that progressive nature of the tax, but they pay a lot of indirect tax, VAT and and other um, indirect taxations, which are all quite what we call regressive, the opposite of of progressive. So it gets very, very complicated very, very quickly. And people do play fast and loose with the numbers. So I think it's always useful in this context to remind ourselves of some of the numbers. We could go on and on about this for, for, for four hours and we won't, um, but I think some of our listeners will be will be interested in this. For the for the year in which we've got most recent data for incomes in Ireland, um thirty-five percent of people didn't pay any income tax at all. Now you on the surface might say well that's actually a good thing because by definition if they're not paying much income tax or not paying any income tax as do 35 percent of income earners in ireland that's probably because they're on low incomes and that must be a good thing let's not hit the low earners low earners and i think broadly we'd all agree with that um from a point of view of solidarity however i think it probably raises the question about how um how are we all in this together if if uh, you know, over a third of your population of your earners are not paying any income tax at all. It sets up weird incentives because one of the things that will happen is, of course, that, they, that those people will always be in favor of raising other people's taxes, which may be a good thing, it may be a fair thing. Um, I'm, I'm not going to get into that, um, but it does color the debate, and you need to bear that in mind. Most of the taxes. Are, um, most of the taxpayers are on the standard rate in Ireland. It's 43.6% of earners pay the standard rate of tax and only 20% of people pay the higher rate of tax. But of course, the bulk of taxation does come from the people who earn the money and that's people on average earnings and above in Ireland. And so it's it's a very peculiar system. We reach higher rates of tax in Ireland more quickly than almost any other country in the world so people on low incomes don't pay much tax people on higher incomes um in terms of the league table of of OECD countries Ireland is somewhere in the middle or somewhere on the top depending on how you look at these things people in Ireland do pay pay a lot of taxes um the other thing a more anecdotal thing that i think that if you if you spoke to people in Ireland on average or above um uh, incomes nobody that i know uh, in in that space regards the Irish tax system as anything other than quite penal. So um, one of the things about a tax system is that it has to be deemed to be acceptable to the people that are actually paying the taxes. Nobody likes it, but it's important that they feel that it's fair. You mentioned the social contract, and I can't tell you the number of people that have said to me that they believe that once you go over 50% of income and social taxes on your income at the margin – um, then somehow or other the social contract is is being breached. It somehow feels unfair to be handing over over half your extra euro of income to the state. And higher earners, and they, you don't have to earn very much to be in that category in Ireland, once you add in indirect taxes to their direct tax rate, because the marginal tax rate of when you add in income tax, PRSI, USC, when you start thinking about the VAT and the other indirect taxes that they pay, The marginal tax rates faced by Irish earners are probably in excess of 60%, maybe two-thirds of income handed over to the state at the margin. And I think most people would argue, would think that that is approaching penal levels, um, to put it colourfully. I don't think there's much scope, personally, for raising taxes on these people um, very much. To the extent that people believe that they don't pay those kinds of rates, because one of the aspects of the debate is that um, a lot of um, think tanks produce papers saying, that oh, there's, there, there's so many tax breaks, there's so many holes in the tax system. Irish higher rate taxpayers don't end up paying those kinds of rates. I think a lot of those loopholes have been closed. Um, I know there are arguments about wealth taxes in Ireland. Um, if you're going to tax wealth in Ireland more than you do already, you're going to have to tax people's houses, you're going to have property taxation and there are very good arguments for more property taxation in Ireland. But the idea that there is this vast cohort of wealthy people escaping taxes, which seems to flavour much of the, the sort of left-wing side of the debate, I think isn't based on data. That's a long-winded answer to your question, Jim. Yeah. I'll shut up there. What do you think?
0: I, I, I remember, Chris, that Finton O'Toole comment about you, and he cited statistics at the time, I think basically saying that um, higher income workers paid 30% of their income in tax, lower income workers paid 30% of their income in tax. That's taking into account direct and indirect taxes. Uh, Those were the statistics I think he threw out at the time, if my memory serves me. Um, And to be honest, I was never able to find the source of those statistics because I cannot believe that a lower income person would end up paying that level of income tax, or sorry, taxation, full stop, given, for example, that most categories of food are not taxable. So, you know, the the, the, the marginal propensity to consume of food for lower income workers is very high, and there's very little indirect tax on food. So I, I just can't figure that one out. And we spoke about this Um, in an earlier podcast, and we got a number of comments in saying that, well, I had made the comment about Ireland's income tax system being the most progressive in the world, or one of the most progressive in the world, and I was attacked saying that i ignored indirect taxes. But I actually um, cannot figure out that argument at the moment. I just quite simply don't believe it until I can unearth the evidence. The reality, you threw out the statistics there about the percentage of people who pay various levels of tax. Um, it's, it's also the case, for example, that you move into the 40% income tax band, earning 10% less than the average industrial wage. Um, that is a bloody progressive tax income tax system by any stretch of the imagination. And I'll throw out another, I think it's an interesting statistic. Um, in 2006, just before the crash, roughly similar level of employment in the economy as we had in 2019. Okay, so we're talking about roughly the same size um, labour force working. Back then, um, income tax accounted for around 26% of the total tax take. In 2019, and indeed 2020, despite the COVID um, problems in the labour market, Um, Income tax accounted for over 39% of the total tax take. And in the first quarter of this year, that figure is up at 43%. So higher earners, higher income earners in this country pay a hell of a lot of tax. That is the reality. Because I cite those statistics about the 26% of the total tax take jumping to 39%. And that is despite the fact, as you say, around... 880,000 people are not workers, are not in the tax net at all. So there's been this massive concentration of tax burden on people who earn relatively um, high levels of income. So I I was also persistently infuriated. Well, everything about the, the whole water charges thing infuriated me. Uh, Because I believe then, I believe now that we should pay for water, that it is necessary to have charges for water for investment in the infrastructure purposes, also to discourage wasteful use of water. I could go on and on, but I I firmly believe water charges were a good idea. Okay, but obviously it was a political hot potato that the government of the time um, didn't have the um, bottle, I'll use that polite term, um, to proceed with it, and they backed off, uh, which in my view was a total disaster. But during the people who were opposed to water charges, when you ask them, "Well, how are we going to pay for our water infrastructure?" the answer was, "We should have a progressive tax system." We have a bloody progressive tax system, you know, and I think we have demonstrated clearly through the use of statistics just how bloody progressive it is. So that that sort of argument really, really. Gets under my skin. My overreacting.
1: Yeah, me, me too. And um, um, no, I, I just think that it's important to always have a fact-based debate about this because you know the, we can debate this, and there are many nuances, many subtleties. One of the th- things that arise from the statistics that we quote is just why do so many people in Ireland have such low incomes that we need the very progressive tax and welfare system. To redistribute because so, what Ireland has is very very big what we call market wage inequality which is before we tax and redistribute we have a very unequal society we have a lot of very low earners but then the tax system does an awful lot to cure that and you, you could ask the question sh- is is that an ideal situation should not people be paid more and that's one many uh, one of the many aspects of the debate. Um, Moreover, just to reiterate, the, the, the way in which people pay, play fast and loose with the numbers in order to pursue a political agenda, to actually pursue a unicorn, a myth that there is this pot of untaxed money sitting somewhere in Ireland, a bunch of a very large number of rich fat cats getting away with not paying any tax, is for the most part a myth. There are anomalies, there are holes, yes, but they've steadily been closed off. And I do think that Ireland's tax system in the world is, is is one of the fairest from a redistribution point of view. I think we should probably leave it there, Jim, because I can just anticipate all the comments that are going to start coming in. And maybe the next podcast will at least in part respond to those comments. So thanks for that discussion. And we'll see you next time.
0: Th- thanks, Chris. Um, just a couple of things I'd like to say before we wrap. One is that we are in, we've we invited Seamus Coffey, the economist in UCC, to join us in our next podcast to discuss the whole issue around corporation tax. And sometime then thereafter, we've invited Neil Macdonald, the Director General of ISME, to come on and talk about the status of the SME sector in the Irish economy. So we look forward to you all joining us for those interesting discussions. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power we aim to provide an independent take on economics and politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined.